You're listening where the world comes to talk. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. When most Civil War readers come across references to German-Americans in the Union Army, it ends up being a discussion of the 11th Corps at Chancellorsville and Gettysburg, routed in two consecutive battles. The German-Americans also served in the Western Theater, notably in the 32nd Indiana Infantry Regiment. Join us today in Civil War Talk Radio for the story of that regiment as we meet with Joseph R. Reinhardt, editor of Gallant Dutchman, Civil War Letters from the 32nd Indiana Infantry on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey Internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from East Carolina University, my office there in Greenville, North Carolina, but not speaking on behalf of the university or its pirate football team, fresh off their defeat in last year's uh, uh, bowl game. This is uh, the first show we're doing in 2007, if you're downloading it sometime in the future. So we're coming to you on a sunny January day, cold but clear. As always, uh, the legal disclaimer, well, that's already taken care of. And always, your donations are welcome this week, special donation solicitation is to take uh, anything uh, donated in the month of January 2007 and turn it over to the local youth soccer program uh, because I have to raise money for them anyway and it's a big pain. So please feel free to contribute to that. Uh, And in return, I promise not to discuss at length the adventures of the Greenville Stars U16 and U12 girls soccer teams uh, as they rampage through the Eastern Carolina uh, soccer world. Well... This week on Civil War Talk Radio, we're discussing the the, the story of a particular regiment, one that is of uh, special interest to me that served in the Army of the Ohio, a particular uh, interest of mine. And our guest is Joseph R. Reinhardt. Uh, Joe, are you there? Yes, I am, Jerry. 
thanks for joining us today. I'm glad you could do this. Let me start off asking the first question of the proper pronunciation of the name of the colonel of the 32nd Indiana. August Willick. Willick, as if with a K. It's, it's spelled with an H, but it has the K sound. Uh, some people call him August Willish, but I think the most popular pronunciation is August Willick. So we'll we'll stay with that then. August Willick's Gallant Dutchman is the name of uh, the volume you've edited of the uh, translated and edited of letters, uh, newspaper, public letters, and others from the uh, the members of the 32nd Indiana. Uh, tell me a little bit uh, about how you got interested in this this unit. Well, uh, I got interested in the 32nd Indiana because it had uh, it, it was an all German regiment and it had about 25 men from Louisville, Kentucky in it. Louisville is my home. I was born and raised there. And uh, so that had an interest to me because of the Kentucky, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and the connection with the 32nd Indiana Regiment, which is one of the hardest fighting regiment that's, that regiments that Indiana furnished to the Union. So uh, this uh, this regiment, as you point out, is made up primarily of German Americans. Um, what what was the German American population's interest in the Civil War when it began? Uh, well, um, they were uh, living in the North and wanted to support the Union, most of them. Uh, many of the men in the 32nd joined because they wanted to prove, well, they wanted to help uh, preserve the Constitution and keep the country intact, and they also wanted to prove that they were good Americans by making a Contribution, sometimes sacrificing their life uh, for the America, for America, for the North. This is a, a theme you see throughout American history, where generations of immigrants will will fight for the country as a way of establishing their their credentials. Uh, yes, as it were, as Americans. Um, what what brought uh, you talk a little bit at the beginning of your book about what brought many of these people to uh, the United States in the first place? What were some of the reasons people came here? Well, I would think most of them came for economic benefits and uh, seeking a better life. However, there was uh, one group, uh, the 48ers, they were called, who participated in the German Revolution against the monarchies in 1848 and some uprisings in 1849 that had to leave Germany or they would have been uh, thrown in jail or, or uh, put to death. And uh, about 4,000 uh, wound up in America. Uh, they all didn't come in 1848 or 1849. A lot of them uh, came a year or two later, 1850, 18, I'm sorry, 1850, 1852, 1853. They uh, first went into France and Switzerland and England. And then came to the U.S. And uh, many of them had the hope of forming an army here, uh, recruiting the Germans here and taking them back to Germany to invade Germany to, again, try and overthrow the monarchies and establish a Republican government. So these were political refugees, like, yes. Uh, yes. like, like uh, Cubans in Miami fleeing from Castro, trying to organize an army and go uh, back. Yes. Yeah, uh, it, it strikes me that as ill-conceived as the, the Bay of Pigs adventure was in 1961, the uh, idea of forming a, a, a German exile army in the United States and sailing back to Europe seems really far-fetched. Well, it was. It was. They never were able to get enough men or enough money. Although uh, they did travel around, some of them did travel around the uh, 
the country raising funds and, and having meetings in various cities, including Olivas Willick, uh, to try and get uh, this revolutionary farm to go back and invade Germany. But uh, I think it was more of a dream than uh, something that was going to really happen. And they were not just staying here. And then the uh, Civil War started, and they got involved in that. A lot of them did. As I understand it, uh, I guess the German-American community was divided in some ways politically because you've got, on the one hand, uh, the interests you just mentioned, the, the political refugees who would be likely to favor the North and uh, uh, not likely to, to enlist on, on the side of the Confederacy, uh, and, and in particular would support the Republican Party at the beginning of the war. But you've also got uh, a strong tradition of immigrant support of the, the, uh, of the Democrats mm-hmm. in this era because cause the Republicans are still associated with the Know Nothing Party, right? Uh, who are strongly anti-immigrant. But but either way, when the war breaks out, as you point out, they, there's a strong tendency to support the Union. Um, well, most of the Ger- the German immigrants in the United States in 1860. Uh, we're living in the north, uh, approximately 1.2 million. Mm-hmm. And there were only about 78,000 uh, native-born Germans living in the south. So uh, there was just a you know, much smaller number living in the south. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, a lot of them uh, in the south also went into the uh, southern army. Some were forced into it, even though they didn't want to go. Uh, but uh, I think there were about 200,000 Germans, native-born Germans, served in the Union Army, and you know maybe 10 to 15,000 Germans served in the Southern Army. So most of them were in the North. I see. And they were very divided. Uh, most of the immigrants, uh, well, the Catholic immigrants, Catholics, Roman Catholics amounted to about a third of the immigrants, mm-hmm. and they were staunch Democrats. And so were a lot of the other Germans because the uh, Democratic Party back in that time w- was accepting uh, immigrants into their party, and the Republican Party grew out of the Know Nothing Party uh, to some extent. A lot of the Know Nothings went into the Republican Party when it was when it was formed, so uh, that kept a lot of Catholics from going into the Republican Party. It's just the fear of the Know Nothingism, and uh, and other Germans too. So uh, you mentioned in your book a lot of these German immigrants also belong to the, the, the Turnverein. Uh, yes. Uh, tell tell me a little bit about that organization. Okay, the the, the Turner uh, Turnverein was organized, I believe, uh, around 1812 in Germany, and it was organized to uh, keep the men, young men, physically and, and mentally fit. Uh, hoping someday to overthrow Napoleon, who had uh, you know ravaged their countries at that time. And when these Turners, when these men came to the United States, who were Turners in Germany, uh, they formed Turners organizations here in the United States. In fact, the first Turners, uh, Turnverein, uh, today it's known as the American Turners, mm-hmm. uh, was formed in Cincinnati around 1850, and the second one was formed in Louisville, Kentucky. So it really got its start in the Midwest, you know, in, in the border state of Kentucky and, and Ohio, and then spread to Illinois and so forth. There was a, a chapter in Fort Wayne, Indiana, as I recall. Yes, I believe so. And there was, I don't know, Evansville had one, and uh, many of the, the southern Indiana cities had them. So this this was sort of a. I mean, there's not no quite exact equivalent organization. It's partly a. 
fraternal organization, partly a gymnastics club, yes. uh, partly and, a political organization. Uh, yeah, they discussed politics quite a bit. Uh, they even some of them even had militias and did drills, and they had uh, had uniforms they wore, uh, white white jackets, and uh, they also. Um, had you know, social events, and they were interconnected, and they'd have gymnastic competitions, and they'd have, have singing competitions. So, uh, you know, the Turners from Louisville would go up to Cincinnati, and the ones from Evansville would go to Cincinnati, and maybe the ones in Philadelphia would come down. And so they got to know each other that way. So it was a kind of a fraternal organization, and they were all pretty much uh, had the ideas that the 48ers had. A lot of them weren't 48ers. They didn't participate in the revolution but came after that, but they had the same ideas about these 48ers who were very interested in uh, the Republican form of government, uh, freedom, uh, abolition of slavery. Uh, they, uh, a lot of them, uh, some of them were atheists and agnostics and others, uh, and they, most of them were against organized churches, especially the Catholic Church. Uh, one reason the Catholic Church would not support them during the Revolution but supported the monarchy over in Germany. So since they've got this this kind of almost paramilitary organization, uh, the you know, fraternal organization, political organization, all these different characteristics, when the war breaks out, it's sort of a ready-made recruiting tool. That's correct. That's correct. They were and, some of the first to uh, join the Union Army. And uh, they were normally leaders in the ethnic regiments. A lot of the ethnic regiments sprung from uh, Turner's organizations as the, uh, I think, the 32nd Indiana did, the 9th Ohio did. Now, the 9th Ohio is, is one of the first ones, and, and Villick was a member of that organization. At yes. Uh, he uh, recruited four companies for that regiment and became its adjutant and later moved up to its major. And when uh, Governor Morton in Indiana agreed uh, with some Germans who had come to him and asked to form a German regiment in Indiana, he picked August Willick to lead it because Willick was well-known in America because of his role in the revolution in Germany. He was one of the leaders of the revolution in Germany, led a corps of troops, uh, and was very highly respected. So he had high visibility, and, and a lot of men flocked to his uh, regiment to serve under him. And I, I recall one source that you quote mentions there was also a uh, uh, political uh, Division within uh, just the standard political uh, infighting within the German community in Indiana, and if, if Governor Morton had picked either faction's leader to be the colonel of the 32nd, he would offend the other faction. That's correct. Yeah, there were cliques, so to speak. So he reaches out to Ohio and picks. So he reaches out to Ohio, who to one of the most respected uh, German leaders and with military experience, and brings him in, and uh, that solved the problem of uh, different. Uh, men from Indiana trying to get the colonelship and the and the majorships and so forth. Now, how did uh, Villett go about recruiting the uh, the thirty second? Uh, I think he went uh, well. One thing is through newspaper ads, and also letters to the uh, Turner's organizations. And there were articles in newspapers about him farming the regiment. I noticed uh, when I was reviewing the uh, Louisville Anzeiger, which was the German language newspaper in Louisville. At that time, uh, there were ads uh, in there in August of 1861, and also in the Cincinnati papers, 
And I'm sure there were uh, ads in other papers, like in Fort Wayne, where some of the men came from, and Evansville. The uh, so this was the late this was the summer of 1861 when this organization is coming together. Yes, it was after uh, Indiana had a number of three month regiments formed, and after the um, some of the Germans uh, joined those regiments, and then they got back from from their three month enlistments and wanted to form this German regiment. So that that's why I was formed in August. Uh, it was. Uh, it was about August when uh, they start the enlistments on the uh, three months regiments were ending and were being reorganized into three year regiments. There was a an order in uh, July of eighteen sixty one, a War Department order number forty five uh, that I don't know if you, you came across, which uh, required volunteers to be English speakers. Yes. And that order caused a lot of consternation in the German-American community. Uh, yes, it did, and it was protested, and it was withdrawn. And that, that it was withdrawn in a matter of weeks, I think, in, in early yes. August of 61, that it was withdrawn. Yes. So you, you, you encountered people who would become 32nd Indiana soldiers uh, writing about that order or, or complaining about it? Uh, uh, no, not really. Um, not, not in the letters. They didn't talk about that because... By the time they were organizing the 32nd Indiana, uh, I believe that order had been withdrawn. So, so that, that predates the formation of the regiment. Yes, and there were a lot of Germans in the 32nd Ohio who could not speak English. The officers could, so they could communicate with uh, you know the Americans under who they served and other regiments, but a lot of the rank and file could not speak English. And that's one reason they might have joined the 32nd in addition to wanting to be in uh, a regiment with people of the same culture and spoke the same, you know, spoke the same were, language. Were most of the men in the 32nd Indiana actually from Indiana, as far as you could tell? Uh, about 80%, 85% uh, were from Indiana. One company came over from Ohio, a, a group of men that wanted to serve under Willa came from Cincinnati and, and joined up and formed a company, I believe it was a sixth company. And like I said, about 25 men from Louisville, Turners from Louisville, immediately joined up. And also Louisville Turners, had about the same number, had gone and joined the 9th Ohio. There was a lot of connections between the 9th and the 32nd. You know, uh, the, the men, the Turners, and men from Louisville and Cincinnati. Well, this uh, gets us our, in our story here to the, the formation of the regiment and, and about to enter service. We're going to take a short break and come back in a moment and talk more about this remarkable regiment, the 32nd Indiana Infantry. Our guest today is Joe Reinhardt, translator and editor of the Letters of Members of the 32nd. We'll be back in a few moments on Civil War Talk Radio. important small engagement to the Civil War that you've never heard of. Find out what it is when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
You got a small business? Well, then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called "Growing Your Business" by Mark LeBlanc. Wow! I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned—well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Because they work. I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website SmallBusinessSuccess.com. Clever, huh? Small business success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, and who doesn't, you should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at SmallBusinessSuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business. SmallBusinessSuccess.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Joe Reinhardt, editor and translator of August Villick's Gallant Dutchman, Civil War Letters from the 32nd Indiana Infantry. In our first segment, we talked about the uh, immigration of German Americans to the United States, their political leanings and their interest in joining uh, the service of the Union during the Civil War and forming regiments like the 9th Ohio and, in particular, the 32nd Indiana. Joe, one of the things that, that I think is interesting about the German-American military experience that is often hard to recreate is that what what we think of Germany today is very different from how that uh, area was perceived in the 1860s. At that time, of course, there is no country called Germany. Uh, and the image of that nation is much more one of uh, uh, Goethe and, and uh, music and poetry rather than uh, militarism. Uh, Rommel and, and uh, uh, the, the German wars of this 20th century are all in the future. So Germany is not thought of as a warlike place. To the extent you think of its wars, you'd think of the Napoleonic Wars and the defeats suffered uh, uh, in Napoleon's hands. So uh, how do these German-Americans see themselves as soldiers when when they... uh, Well, they see themselves as great soldiers. Uh, in In the letters I found in the of the 32nd Indiana, and also I've uh, translated and edited a collection of letters of the six, uh, of letters of a soldier in the Sixth Kentucky Volunteer Infantry, Godfrey Rentschler, and uh, they all talk about how much better they are than the Americans at, at being soldiers, and are very proud of it. And uh, and there's also references that they want to bring honor to the German name. That that's all through these letters. They're very proud. And they want to be good American citizens, but they don't want to give up their Germanness, uh, their culture, their language, their beer, which is a big part of their culture. Uh, did they maintain a beer ration? Uh, early in the war, they did. Early in the war, they did. In fact, uh, one of the letters, uh, Private Andreas Mayer uh, writes to the Louisville uh, Anzeiger and said that Colonel Willick had gone in to see General uh, Sherman, William T. Sherman, to uh, complain because Sherman wanted to cut off their beer ration. 
and that Colonel Willick had come back with 10 barrels of beer for the men. And I found an article in an Indiana newspaper that Willick had, had told uh, Sherman that his German men had to have their beer. For some of them, it was like their bread, and they just couldn't do without it, and that they didn't get drunk. But this was a national beverage, and they had to have it. So, And there's a lot of in the letters that we, are, we aren't getting any beer. It's really bad. Uh, we're just dying to have a beer. <laughs> and talking about uh, they talk about the uh, the beer hall heroes back at home that are always you know saying what they ought to do in the war, but you know won't sign up to fight, so they call them beer beer heroes. So this is very much a, a cultural thing, and that, yes. that ties in with what we were saying earlier because we've got the. Uh... Uh, the Whig Party that later, uh, to some extent, uh, supplies many members for the Republican Party, uh, being to some extent the party of, uh, uh, of, of prohibition, of temperance. Yes, that's right. That was another reason why uh, some Germans would not vote for Republicans in the 1860 election, because that party was the party of temperance and Sabbath laws. And the Turners especially, and, and Germans, like to have picnics and celebrations on Sunday and not the quiet Sundays that the Puritan, Puritanical Americans wanted to have. So there was a conflict there between the, the Germans and the uh, Anglo-Americans. So the 39th, I'm sorry, the 32nd Ohio is formed. Uh, 32nd uh, Indiana. I'm sorry, Indiana, I, I, I spoke there. 32nd Indiana is formed. They, uh, it, did you say that the, the officers, you said the officers spoke English. Do they give orders in German? Uh, yes, they did give orders in German. That was one of the unique things about the regiment, is that they did give orders in German. And they used Prussian drilling methods. However, they did the drills, uh, you know, the, the maneuvers and that according to the American method. But they maintain, even maintained their early records in German. From there, uh, so, so they really have a unique, uh, a, a unique American uh, or German-American perspective as they enter the service. They are part of the, uh, initially, the Army of the Ohio uh, right. in Kentucky, and they go on to serve, uh, well, they, they get involved, as I said, between the segments here, in a small action at, uh, at Rowlett's Station in Kentucky in December of 1861. Yes, that was their baptism of fire. And... Uh, I'm going to say a word about this because, with your indulgence, that of the listeners, that the engagement at Rowlett Station, besides its significance for the war, which we'll touch on in a minute, um, is, is for me is a, a personal sore point because uh, I wrote about what happened there in uh, one of the chapters in, in All for the Regiment, which was my uh, history of the early years of the Army of the Ohio. And I was fascinated by that battle and, and read the reports and some letters and, and thought it was a very interesting piece of, of tactical uh, excellence, really, on the part of the 32nd Indiana. Not too long after the book was published, I got a call from uh, uh, Keith Poulter at North and South Magazine, uh, who had read it, and somebody had sent him a manuscript on... Uh, uh, Rowlett Station, mm -hmm. and since I had written a little bit about it, he sent it to me uh, as a reviewer to see if it was appropriate to publish. And I read it, and my conclusion was uh, it, it's pretty good, but it's pretty much my chapter just in 
sentences in different order. Mm-hmm. But it's the same thing. And I told Keith that, and he chose not to publish it, which was the right call. And uh, uh, he ended up actually inviting me to write about Stones River for North and South, and now we continue to work together, and I get to write something for him every once in a while. Uh, I, I, in the current issue, there's uh, I have a piece about the most interesting books of the past year, all of which have been talked about or will be talked about on Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, but yeah, I saw anyway, it. I'm a subscriber to North and South. It's one of my favorites. It, it's a, f- a fine publication. I'm always interested in it. Uh, so you can read and disagree with my choices when it comes out. I hadn't read your book at that time. Oh. So it's, it's <laughs> Maybe <there>. next time. <laughs> uh, but I, now that I... I now... I'll continue my rant about Rowlett Station. I opened uh, your book with great interest, uh, preparatory to doing the show, and uh, as authors will do, whether they admit it or not, pretty much the first thing I do is turn to the back and see, well, what does he say about off of the regiment? Um, since the 32nd was in the Army of the Ohio, uh, we'll see what's there. And uh, you know, it, it, does this author agree with my interpretation of what happened at Rowlett Station or disagree? And as I say, the only thing worse than having another author disagree with you is having them not disagree with you. Uh, Offer the Regiment didn't show up in here. So I must uh, chastise your research for leaving out my fine book. Well, I have read your fine book, and as soon as it came out, I'm very interested in the Army of Ohio because the 6th Kentucky Infantry also served in there, and the 5th Kentucky, the Louisville Legion regiments I'm interested in. But I uh, just use other sources. I had uh, four or five letters of soldiers who fought in that battle in the 32nd Indiana, and I was documenting uh, and putting, you know, explaining what they said. And I just uh, did not put your book out to, uh, as a reference. No, well, I'm, I'm I, and I'm teasing you, perhaps unfairly here <laughs> on, on the air. Um, I, I just was hoping to see it in the bibliography. It always gives one a thrill to find it there. And most authors don't get a chance to chastise people for, for failing to list their books. Uh, I understand that. I just read, I'm interested, William B. Hazen, who was the yes. head of the 6th Kentucky's Brigade. And in the uh, history of that, that just, his uh, biography that just came out in 2006, there's not a mention of 6th Kentucky Infantry. Really? Which uh, was a corps, one of the two regiments that served under him for two and a half years. And... Uh, and, and I was doesn't a bit get a mention. That, but well, it, it's, that happens. Uh, it, so we're we're revealing here for the public. This is what authors do: is as we look for the particular bees in our own bonnets as, as we get a book, <laughs> um, and hope to find something there. Uh, it is actually fun. I, I, to be more serious about this, uh, when I look in a book that might cover a topic like mine. Uh, I do look to see if, if the author has engaged what I've said in some way, uh, because it's a kind of conversation, just as, as in a way that you and I are doing now, only more uh, stately and formal on paper. And it is interesting to see what others have to say about our own topics, and I, I'm sure you feel the same way. Yes. Uh, did you like the Hazen book, by the way? I have not read that. Uh, it, it was okay. Uh, it had a couple errors in it that, would have been picked up if my book had been read uh, before uh, it was published. And there was not a picture of Hazen in there at all, hmm. which I thought was strange. And only a few uh, copies of some hand-drawn maps. So, 
I, mean, I was disappointed in that from that viewpoint. Uh, it did uh, give me some insight into his post-war years more than his pre-war years. Well, William B. Hayes is a very interesting character, certainly. He's one of my favorites. In regard to maps, I will let the listeners know your book, uh, August Billick's Gallant Dutchman, does have excellent maps of the engagements. And getting back to Rowlett Station, uh, I really was curious to see what you wrote about it. And, and regardless of the sources, I enjoyed reading that chapter because... There, there are no contemporary maps that I'm aware of that show the positions of the companies, and so you really have to reconstruct from the reports and letters where people were. And I found it gratifying to see the map that you had more or less reflected my understanding from what I had read. Uh, well, I uh, got the ideas for those <coughs> positions of the various companies from a map drawn back uh, for the uh, Captain Adolf Metzner of the Ninth, in, I'm sorry, the 32nd Indiana, mm-hmm. uh, that he drew about 20 years after the war, and then I, you know, read the official reports and all I could find about the battle to, to uh, make sure it was as accurate as I thought it could be. Now, this battle was, on the one hand, a very small engagement. Just one Union regiment and outpost just across the Green River. Not even the whole regiment across the river, but a few companies posted. And they are attacked by a Confederate detachment, which includes Terry's Texas Rangers. That's correct. Saturday cartoon show named for a uh, a very uh, colorful uh, Confederate cavalry unit. Right. And the battle that follows lasts... Well, well, tell us what happens in this battle. Well, there was uh, the... uh Confederate cavalry, about 250 men, attacked a company that was on the uh, south side of the river, and three other companies came to their support. And uh, one of the companies formed a uh, square to defend against the cavalry, and I believe that's one of the few times uh, the infantry formed in the war that a square was formed to repel cavalry. And uh, the... uh, Texans were very brave. They rode right up into the, you know, right up to the edge of the square and up, right up to the soldiers. And they were uh, armed with uh, a sh- double-barreled shotgun and two six-shooters. Uh, and they uh, fired that into the uh, into the 32nd Indiana's men that were over there. <clears throat> In the meantime, Willick uh, brought the remainder of the regiments over on the south side of the river for support. But I believe by the time uh, they they got there, that the battle was pretty much over. Uh, Colonel Terry was killed during the battle. That could have been uh, one of the reasons why the Confederates slacked off there. So when the and, battle, uh, there was u- the use of the bayonet in both the Ninth Indiana and the Thirty Second. I'm sorry, the Thirty Second Indiana and the Ninth Ohio. Uh, they used. Uh, they like to use the bayonet. They like bayonet charges. Yes, the Ninth Ohio had done that. Yeah, at, uh, and one officer, uh, Lieutenant Max Sachs, was killed. Uh, he was surrounded by some uh, cavalrymen who ordered him to drop his weapon, and he starts slashing at him with with his sword, and they shot and killed him. And uh, Willick later uh, said that he, you know, he uh, didn't use a good tactic; that he should not have uh, gone out. There were about six men with him, gone out by himself. He should have stayed with his company. But he was uh, very well liked by Willick and the men in the regiment, and they, they spoke very highly of him. Very sad when he was killed. 
but it was really a great confidence builder for them because after the battle, uh, General Buell issued an order stating that uh, they were effectively they were very well drilled and disciplined and that other units should look to them and follow their example. So that really, uh, their heads really swelled with pride when uh, General Buell, the commander of the Army there, uh, praised them so highly. And they, they got to mention the New York Times, I believe. Yes, they did. A couple uh, of major newspapers, including the New York Times, mentioned the battle. And it was one of the first Union victories in 1861. Up until then, most of the uh, battles have resulted in a loss for the Union side. And, and that really, to me, underscores its importance. This is uh, two months after Ball's Bluff, which is a Union disaster. There's really been nothing for the Union side to take pride in. And especially, you've got the element here of the, the ethnicities of the two sides. If, if the Confederates view their society as superior because uh, all the, the, the difficult work is, is relegated to a permanent laboring class, and every white Southerner can be in, in some way a gentleman, uh, none of them are mudsills, right? then the German-Americans, the immigrants, are, are the lowest of the mudsills in yep. Southern eyes. Yes. And here, against Terry's Texas Rangers, the, the elite cavalry, uh, look who wins this battle. Uh, to, I think it's very significant uh, socially for the northern public and for the morale of the, the not just the 32nd Indiana, but the whole Army of the Ohio. Yes. So it, it, uh, it it's not a well-known engagement, but I, I agree with the with your description in it, uh, uh, where you talk about the the morale building uh, for this unit that comes out of this, this small battle. Well, from there, the unit goes on to campaign uh, uh, in in Kentucky. There's sort of a, a lull for a while. Nothing much happens the next few months. Yes, that's that's correct. And uh, then they get shipped to, or they uh, wind up in Nashville and uh, march over to Pittsburgh Landing and engage in the Battle of Shallow on the second day. Well, that's a good place for us to take another break then. We'll find out what 32nd Indiana does at Shiloh when we return in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. Second Indiana, August Billick's gallant Dutchman, is the subject of our conversation today with Joseph R. Reinhardt on Civil War Talk Radio. It's the one level playing field in business, the Internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs Apsio. Apsio's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great first impression on the web. Choose Apsio, A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit www.apsio.com. 
You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Joe Reinhardt, author of August Villick's Gallant Dutchman, Civil War Letters from the 32nd Indiana Infantry. In our section just concluded, we discussed the beginnings of the military career of the 32nd Indiana, including its remarkable victory over a larger Confederate force at Rowlett Station in December 1861. And we're getting from there to the next big engagement of the unit uh, as the the regiment marches off uh, through Kentucky into Tennessee and will eventually end up at Shiloh. Uh, Joe, one thing that that I I noticed was the reference to uh, uh, Bowling Green, the Confederate fortifications of Bowling Green. Oh, yes. Uh, They refer to, one one of your letter writers describes it uh, as supposed to be the American Sevastopol. uh, Correct. Russian fortress in the Crimea that defied the Allies for so many months, 1854. Uh, to the German, though, it didn't uh, didn't seem to measure up. It didn't seem as formidable as it did to the Americans. You know, they, they they brought a European standard of fortification. And, uh, right, and in in many of the letters, uh, they talk about European events in history, European wars, where an American might refer to something in the American Revolution or the Mexican War. Uh, most of their references are to uh, things that happened in Europe, and they were the Germans were familiar with the readers and the uh, writers. So the regiment goes on, uh, uh, as you suggest, to fight at the Battle of Shiloh. Grant's men, uh, our listeners all know this story, were surprised the first day at Shiloh, driven back to the banks of the Tennessee River. But Don Carlos Buell's Army of the Ohio shows up that night and the next morning to reinforce Grant's troops, and among them is the 32nd Indiana. What uh, what was their experience at Shiloh? Well, they were the first of their brigade off the boat, and they were sent to plug a gap between the left of Rousseau's division, I'm sorry, brigade, and uh, another unit on the left, Crittenden's, I believe, on the left. And uh, they hit a firestorm there. Uh, They lost 91, uh, had suffered 91 casualties in the battle, including 19 dead. Uh, one, there they made a bayonet charge, but they didn't quite reach the uh, the enemy because the enemy uh, turned and, and, and fled, but th- then the enemy came back. And uh, one of the things you read about a lot in Civil War literature is that during that battle, uh, Willick noticed some of his troops weren't moving in, in alignment like he thought they should, so he stopped them all and put them through the manuals of arms, the manual of arms, you know, a drill to steady them on the battlefield. And an interesting thing is Lou Wallace, who uh, was a Union general in that battle and later became famous for writing Ben-Hur, uh, wrote about that incident, saying it was one of the most amazing things he saw during the war, is uh, those men being put through the manual of arms during a battle with bullets uh, flying all around and some of them being hit by the bullets. Well, that's but, a... But they went on... Uh, and uh, we're very proud of their performance at, at that battle. And, uh, and sh- shortly after that, General Willick, I'm sorry, Colonel Willick, was raised to a uh, brigadier general and took over command of the brigade, which he commanded uh, throughout uh, the rest of the war until he was wounded at Rosaka 
and uh, was out of the war after that because of a serious wound. Uh, the division commander uh, was General McCook at this McCook point. McCook was the division commander. Johnston was the brigade commander at Shallow, but he was on he was off sick. So uh, Colonel Gibson of the uh, 49th Ohio served as the uh, brigadier general during that battle. The, the two, Willick's regiment was sent on ahead of the brigade and, and uh, pretty much fought on their own and, and, uh, until Colonel Gibson brought the other three regiments up. I gather the, the men of the 32nd didn't think a whole lot of uh, McCook. No, they didn't. There are several letters where they, they say that uh, they wanted a leader that would be out front and that nobody saw him during the battle. And they also, several of them also did not like Johnson. They believed that he did not send them reinforcements at the Battle of Rallet Station and just let them hanging out there, although there were several regiments available on the north side of the Green River. Hmm. And uh, several of the letter writers were very bitter about that, and they say so. And this McCook we're talking about is Alexander McCook. Alexander McCook, right. There were the, the, the nine of the fighting McCooks, or 11 of them, uh, some, some large number. Of there was a very large number, and several became generals. And, and one was originally the colonel of the 9th Ohio. The right, German. Robert McCook. Yes. And for the last uh, year and a half, I've been translating 168 letters of the 9th Ohio. And that's why I, I sometimes say Ninth Indiana instead of Thirty uh, Second. I've just been so engrossed in the Ninth Ohio the last year and a half that that's uh, ingrained in my mind. And these letters are very similar to the ones written by the Thirty Second Indiana. Is that something the, we can look forward to seeing in print? Address and although they're a lot more a lot more aggressive and a lot more well, there's a lot more of the letters. There's 168 of them, and there's only I think there's 60 letters of the Sixth Indiana, but they are terrific. And, and are you planning to publish this? Oh, yes, yes. I just finished uh, translating them, and I've got half of it edited, so I would hope to have it ready to go to some presses to look at uh, within about six months. Okay, so that's sometime in 2007, and maybe maybe the following year we'll see it on our shelves. Hopefully. That would be Hopefully, great. But, uh, university presses seem to work uh, slowly. So. That That is very true. Uh, you know, a year and a half or two years. Yes, there's no, there's no rush. They, they, I, I remember uh, an editor saying to me when I was complaining about the, the speed of things. He said, "We don't want the first book on the subject. We want the best book on the subject." Right. So well, I'm, uh, I'm very grateful that they published uh, the two university presses published my last two books. So well, that, that I have to be patient. Uh, it, it, well, I, I'm looking forward then, certainly to the Ninth Ohio story. They, that's another regiment with the with. The, obviously, a great history. Yeah. Um, the 32nd uh, fought after Shiloh uh, with the Army of the Ohio. It was engaged at, at, at Corinth. It uh, made its way across Tennessee uh, towards Chattanooga and ended up participating in the, the race to Louisville, the, right. uh, uh, the brutal march in the hot summer of 1862 when Bragg's army is dashing north, and so is Buell's. Uh, you had some interesting letters about that subject. Uh, yes. Uh, the, uh, there's a lot, lot, several letters about the march over to Chattanooga, through northern Alabama over to Chattanooga. Mm-hmm. But th- there's not a whole lot uh, from, uh, say, uh, Murfreesboro up to Louisville. I guess they were so busy marching, they didn't have time to stop and write letters. Right, I guess that that's true. That'd be a limitation they would have. Right, and then they went on over uh, to, in toward Perryville, 
Mm-hmm. They on October one, the Buell's Army left Louisville. Uh, they were in uh, Sills Division that was sent to Shelbyville and over to Frankfurt to hold Edmund Kirby Smith's army in place there while the rest of the Cook's Corps and Crittenden's and Gibson's uh, Gilbert. converged on uh, Perry, went through Bardstown and Shepherdsville, and then converged on Perryville. And the 32nd Indiana missed the Battle of Perryville. Uh, they got there three days after the battle because they, they had gone into Frankfurt, the state capital, and then, and then headed down to Perryville, and the battle had been over several days. So they they missed that battle, but they're certainly there for the next big one, which is... Stones River, yes. ...the following month. Now, at Stones River, uh, looking at the map, the, the Army of the Ohio, by this time, it's no longer the Army of the Ohio. I guess it's 14th Army Corps, yes. uh, soon to be called Army of the Cumberland. But they are deployed uh, in, in the traditional linear fashion of a Civil War army. And if I'm not mistaken, the 32nd Indiana is the very end of the line. Yeah, they're on the far right flank. So that makes them sort of the 20th main, uh, if you will, the, the little round top of, of Stones River. Uh, every, everyone who's seen the Gettysburg movie knows the... The, the the monologue, you know, you're the end of the line. This is the last regiment, right? And uh, but they were facing uh, to the right. If you envision the uh, army was in kind of an arc in front of Murfreesboro, they were on the far right hand side, but they weren't facing towards Murfreesboro. They right. were uh, perpendicular. They were in per- perpendicular. They're, they're to bent the back Union line to uh, guard against any regiments coming in. Uh, behind the line. And what happens to them at Stones River? Well, the of course, there was a surprise attack, and it drove the brigade in front of them, to their left, through them. And it disorganized them. Uh, they were, uh, a lot of them were cooking dinner, breakfast and having coffee when the attack occurred. And so uh, other regiments came running through their camp, and they couldn't didn't have much time to form up a line. They uh, got a few rounds off and then just fled. They had to flee and uh, went maybe a mile or so and were able to regroup and yeah. then uh, joined, the, uh, joined the rest of the Army over on the railroad track, where, if you remember, the uh, Union Army swung like a door on a hinge uh, back to the uh, railroad track, the LNN railroad track. Where, they, where Rosecrans was able to establish a solid defense. And since they were on the end, they're like the knob on that door. They'd swing further than almost anybody else. Yeah, they, they, would, they swung further than anybody. Uh, and they lose their commander or yes, their brigade. Uh, Willick had been at General Johnson's headquarters, and uh, when the battle started, he, he wasn't expecting attack, nor was Johnson. When the battle started, he tried to ride back to his regiment and was captured uh, by the Confederates and sent to Libby Prison. Until the following May, he was exchanged. So he gets back in May of 1863. Yeah. So that means he's there for the uh, the regiment's next uh, big show, and, and, and they, they fight in a series of battles in the Western Front. Uh, yes, he was back for the Tullahoma Campaign and Chickamauga, Missionary Ridge, and the beginning of the Atlanta Campaign. After, and the regiment suffers considerable casualties, especially in, in, in those 
uh, in the Atlanta campaign. Yes, they did. They, they, in fact, at Chickamauga, they suffered 122 casualties in that two-day battle, including 21 killed. And so, uh, in the Atlanta campaign, uh, they lost as many d- during the battle at Pickett's Mill, Georgia, where uh, a, a Woods Division, General Thomas Woods Division, who they were put in after the Battle of Chickamauga in a reorganization, uh, tried to get around the Confederate right flank, and uh, the Confederates uh, were there waiting for them, uh, got them in a very disadvantageous position uh, terrain-wise, and uh, Claiborne, Pat Claiborne, the famous uh, Confederate general, was able to rush his division up and uh, pretty much decimated Wood's division. They had lost 1,500 men in, in about an hour and a half. That, that's the, the battle. Ambrose Bierce wrote the story, uh, The Crime at Pickett's Mill. That's cr- right. Uh, right. And Hazen's brigade, which included the 6th Kentucky, was the, the first brigade to attack. And that was followed by, they lost 500 men. That was followed by uh, Willick's brigade, which was commanded, I believe, by Gibson at that time. And uh, they lost over 700 men. And then Neffler's brigade of Wood's division followed up, and they lost several hundred men, but didn't make make much progress. And and it was just a, it was impossible for uh, men to uh, take the Confederate position, considering there were so many Confederates there. Uh, the Confederates were on the high ground and uh, had artillery that was enfilading the the uh, regiments, and also the Union uh, support. Regiments uh, did not come to the support. There were regiments on the right and left, in fact, brigades that were supposed to keep the Confederates busy, but uh, they didn't do it. They just uh, one of them tried to advance, didn't get very far, and stopped. And the other one, I think, it was General McLean. He uh, left saying his men needed rations, mm. so they well, were really let down there. After That's an experience, says, uh, a lot of the men said they were sold out. It, did that, in, in, in your view, contribute to the fact that the, the 32nd Indian, Indiana does not re-enlist when the three years expire in 1860? No, I don't think that was it. Um, the uh, uh, William L. Burton, who wrote the book uh, Melting Pot Soldiers, the Union Regiments, and the Civil War, said that the prejudice against the Germans had a lot to do with it, that... Uh, Hardly any of the German regiments re-enlisted for th- for three years. And however, I've got two letters: one from Godfrey Rentschler of the Sixth Kentucky, that said the reason that men weren't re-enlisting is because that there were a million young men back at home that were healthy that wouldn't come, far- come forward and help them. And that the young men would come forward, they would stay and fight. And I have a similar letter from a soldier in the Ninth Ohio, who said the same, virtually the same thing. That it's just with that lack of support from home, uh, if the Americans didn't care enough about it, they weren't going to continue. And I think they were they were tired of the war, and didn't feel like they were, uh, you know, being appreciated for their sacrifices. And the Thirty uh, Second Indiana lost 171 killed in battle and died of wounds, which is the fourth highest in the whole state of Indiana, out of its hundreds of hundred more than 100 regiments. So they felt they had done their part. They felt they had done their part. Well, and there like, were American units that felt that the men that felt the same that's way. That's true. And I would say we have done our part now, as I hear the music saying we've run out of time once again. But, Joe, thank you very much for being on the show. It was my pleasure. 
And listeners, you'll want to take a look at August Villick's Gallant Dutchman, Civil War Letters from the 32nd Indiana Infantry. Learn more about this remarkable regiment and uh, keep an eye out for uh, Joe's book on the 9th Ohio when that shows up. And in the meantime, thank you all for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs>